The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Scorebox. We've got Karen Cho and Jeff Cutmore in the London studio and myself, Steve Sedgwick, here in Vilnius, Lithuania. These are your headlines. Uh, The US has banned Russian oil imports as the West ramps up sanctions on Moscow. President Biden, though, admitting the move will come at a price. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. It's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. Russia prepares to move into Kiev. According to the Pentagon, the director of the CIA warns of an ugly next few weeks in the conflict, while Ukraine's president evokes Churchill in his speech to the House of Commons. We will fight till the end, at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Wall Street closes lower after another volatile session, while gold surges towards all-time highs as investors put money into safe havens. McDonald's, Pepsi, Coca-Cola and Starbucks suspend their operations in Russia after drawing criticism from politicians and consumers alike for continuing to do business amid the invasion of Ukraine. Unicredit warns losses on its Russian exposure could top $8 billion in the worst-case scenario. But the Italian lender insists it can still meet payout targets. Very good morning, everybody, and a warm welcome to the program. U.S. President Joe Biden has banned imports of Russian oil and gas into the United States as part of a new economic sanctions package against Russia. That move comes after days of debate between the White House and Western allies. The U.K. has also promised to phase out imports of Russian oil by the end of the year, pledging to organize an orderly transition. But the EU which is more dependent on Russian oil than its partners, has so far not joined the pledge. Well, speaking at the White House, President Biden warned that the impact of the ban will also hit consumers, but promised to keep energy supplies steady. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, The price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. In coordination with our partners, we've already announced that we're releasing 60 million barrels of oil from our joint oil reserves. Half of that, 30 billion million, excuse me, is coming from the United States. And we're taking steps to ensure the reliable supply of global energy. President Biden, will Russia responded to the oil ban by restricting exports of some commodities and raw materials to ensure what it called, quote, the security of the Russian Federation. But the Kremlin didn't specify which goods could become subject to restrictions. 
And let's take you to the reaction we are seeing on oil markets. Uh, that ban from the Americans on Russian oil and the phasing out by the British, the Europeans at this point, weighing up its uh, gas supplies uh, for the rest of this year. You've got uh, another spike in WTI uh, Brent, both marching north. Um, something more modest versus a very strong action we've seen in previous trading sessions around uh, the news flow. But we're still uh, hugging the 130 mark on Brent, 125 and a half on WTI. Effectively, what we have seen on these markets, oil is nearly double its early December lows. So we've got uh, a fairly significant bounce in terms of the, the, some of the price action as we look at this 130 level. Some are saying uh, near term we could get to 150. That is a market we're watching. Of course, there have been higher predictions out there in the market, 200 from some of the banking analysts and from the Russian side, which uh, clearly is a motivated uh, contributor to the dialogue at this point. They're talking about the $300 mark. So we are very much watching the volatility here. We did have a spike in the price action yesterday, WTI was up 3.6%. Brent was up 4.3%. So intraday, we did have very strong moves. Let me take you to the metals market. We've been closely eyeing uh, various different parts of this. And the one that really jumped out was the nickel market yesterday. We saw the uh, suspension after some wild activity in the Asian trade uh, reports that one stainless steel billionaire had placed some short bets and that caused uh, a squeeze higher. The LME now trying to uh, work out how to settle a contract and we're waiting to hear further news flow about when the trade could resume. But as you can see this morning, again, no trade as a result. That action paused. The uh, other parts of the market, though, gold. We've seen those safe haven flows in recent sessions and more than 2% pop yesterday. Still above the 2000 mark as it gives back a, a little bit of territory this morning. Silver supported it's up 7 tenths of a percent and right ac across to palladium aluminium you're seeing spikes again in morning session. US market action. We closed around some of the lows of the trade for the Dow. A pullback of 184 points or half of a percent and you can see in lockstep across the major markets a reversal for the S&P and also for the NASDAQ these markets, as we discussed, in correction territory on the Dow, bear market territory for the Nasdaq, the selling not abating at this point, nine out of 11 sectors all trading weekend. It was real usual suspects as we talk about an energy shock to the system. What that does for consumers, you can see consumer staples, one of the underperformers in session across the trade yesterday and also energy on the flip side, one of the best performers. So very much a, a clockwork trade that played out. But as we talk about this energy shock, let's get out to Steve. He's on the road covering the latest from NATO and its allies as he joins us now from Vilnius, Lithuania. Steve, I know you're closely watching the action on energy markets and what NATO allies are saying on the ground about how security plays out for allies from here. Just walk us through the significant developments in your eyes. Yeah, I think there's a few significant developments in the last 24 hours, and I'll try and tie them all together before we get to our commodities guests to talk specifically uh, about energy. But the fact of the matter is that the Anthony Blinken trip to Europe, to Brussels, to NATO, uh, to here uh, in Lithuania, up to Latvia, to Estonia, and of course, uh, just was there to reassure allies about sense of purpose and to create a sense of unity on message. Unity on message uh, in defence of NATO, unity of message uh, in what they can do for Ukraine, and unity of message on of course, uh, what we're doing in terms of sanctions, of which hydrocarbons is a large part of that. 
I'm not saying that's unraveling, but what I am seeing is a, is a few cracks in that unity uh, in the last 24 hours, despite the fact that we had Jens Stoltenberg yesterday up in Latvia, where we were yesterday, of course, as well, at the Adatsi army base. Uh, he was up there with Pedro Sanchez. He was up there with Justin Trudeau, and they were reviewing troops. And Jens Stoltenberg yesterday was just saying, look, we are unified. Don't be under any mistaken uh, ideas that actually an attack on one of us uh, isn't an attack on all of us. So again, the, the, the Article 5 being re-endorsed there as well. And you had the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, also uh, talking about an extension, an indefinite extension uh, of the Canadian commitment to Latvia, which was due to expire next year. So more sense of unity there. But later on in the day, uh, as you'll be aware, the, the cracks started appearing in terms of the sanction side of things as well. So Europe can't go ahead with that hydrocarbon ban that the US can, quite frankly, because Europe imports 40% of its gas and 25% of its crude uh, from Russia and just could not turn that off overnight. The fact that the Europeans are even talking about diminishing that by two thirds uh, in a very, very short time period as well, I find absolutely extraordinary, given the fact that we've spent years talking about medium and long term European energy strategies based in part uh, on Russian hydrocarbons as well. And of course, the whole Nord Stream 2 debate, well, that's just kicked into the long grass. And Mr. Novak, uh, for his part, is doing his bit about saying, well, what about Nord Stream 1? Well, I think the Europeans are saying something very similar. Yeah, we may not want that gas at some stage, but it's about the time frame. But the other area of disunity, which I think has really been very interesting, uh, is regarding these fighters. Uh, And Mr. Zelensky, uh, amazing speech yesterday to UK Parliament. But he has been crying out for fighter jets as well, so they can control some, if not more, of the airspace over Ukraine. They want MiGs because that's what the Ukrainians are trained on. But the problem is these MiG-29s, uh, that it appears now uh, that the Poles have offered to send to Ramstein, which is way further away from Laska, by the way. They're actually in Poland at the moment, right? Uh, Ramstein is southwest of, of Frankfurt as well. So sending those fighters there to put under US control and then getting them back into Ukrainian airspace so they can be used by Ukrainian pilots. Quite frankly, this whole idea ha- has exposed a little bit of a crack between uh, unity between Mr. Blinken and the State Department and what he's been saying with his allies here. Because I was at a press conference just around the corner from where I'm now at the Foreign Office just a couple of days ago where Mr Blinken was point blank asked about those fighters and sidestepped the question as well. So the polls seem to have gone quite public on this one. So I do wonder if there is somewhat of a rift on that one. How this one gets solved remains to be seen. But of course, the concern is if you have NATO pilots flying these jets uh, into Ukraine, A, does that make them a fair target for the Russians? Uh, and B, does that make them party uh, to direct action, i.e. and bringing NATO into this conflict as well? So a lot of concern. Uh, about the the support for Ukraine, but also on the energy front as well. So let's get to uh, an analyst on the energy front as well, because a lot of confusion about where we go next. So let's ask Giovanni Stanovo, who is a commodity analyst over at UBS. And Giovanni, first of all, very, very simple question to you, sir. What do you make of the latest moves uh, from Europe and from the United Kingdom, and especially, of course, from the United States? And what are the ramifications, sir? Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with some numbers. In a global context, the US imports around 700,000 barrels per day of crude and oil products. The UK imports around 200,000 barrels per day. Um, we are talking of a global market of uh, 100 million barrels per day. So it's it's a small fraction uh, in a global context. The biggest concern is, however, if other countries are pushed to in the same place and asked to cut off Russian energy imports. So this is one of the concerns. And the, the, the other one is more uh, related that the oil market is already tight. Inventories are very low. Spare capacity is dwindling. And in that context, any barrel missing is one missing too much. And that is pushing up prices. 
Giovanni, what do you think? And again, as you say, in terms of global context, the US move is not the most enormous amount of energy coming off the table from the Russians as well. But what the Europeans are proposing with this two thirds cut uh, in one year, I find that quite extraordinary. And I'm not entirely convinced whether it's plausible or not. Can you just put some colour on that and whether you think that is at all possible? I would make a clear distinction what is coming out of the European Commission and what is coming out of the member states. The member states which are highly reliable on Russian natural gas imports are uh, sending a different message. So I I would agree with you, it's probably quite optimistic to cut uh, energy or natural gas imports by that large amount by the end of the year. There was some uh, maths around earlier in the week from JP Morgan, I think it was, who said that any million uh, barrel per day taken off the market from Russia was equivalent to $20 extra on the headline price. Do you think that maths adds up? And if so, does that mean we are looking seriously at $200 a barrel oil now? It comes essentially down to how much oil gets disrupted. Definitely, um, we we are hearing disruption in the range of 1.5 to 2.5 million barrels per day at the moment, related rather to loadings. Uh, so it's not um, yet visible in the tanker tracking data, but uh, should become more visible across this month. And uh, here, what we need also to see is um, if some of this flow can be managed to be diverted to Asia. If Asian buyers are willing to um, buy these barrels, then obviously the impact will be different. If we lose, let's say, one and a half, two million, two and a half million barrels per day, essentially it comes down to demand destruction. And here we also need to make uh, a distinction uh, between currency movement. So for example, the euro exchange is completely different than in 2008. And we have already now record high prices in Europe. Same applies to, uh, to India and how governments are reacting with subsidies, for example. But essentially we are saying if we get larger disruption, then oil prices could move above $150 a barrel. That's our risk case. From an investor perspective, do you continue to chase this price higher? Do you enter new positions with oil and gas companies? Do you buy product on the market? We, we have a recommendation since quite a while to be exposed uh, on longer dated oil contracts, which trade at the discount to the spot price. Here, the expectation is because the market is tight, is that these longer dated oil contracts should move high. And as part of our asset allocation, we have also an exposure to energy equity companies since quite a while. Can I ask you about the demand destruction point? Because we keep hearing every time the price goes up, we'll get to a certain point where consumers, businesses change their behaviour. Where do you think that tipping point is, given how dominant the oil story is in the headlines around this war? We were looking uh, to, 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 to the past, so between 2011 and 2014, when the oil price was trading um, in the range 100 to 120, that related to GDP costs, oil spending in relation to GDP of 4, 4.5%. If prices would stay at current levels, then we would be north of 5%. So we would expect already now to start to see some kind of uh, demand destruction kicking in. What is, however, limiting the response is the reopening of the world economies after the pandemic. So there is still some activity related to that. The people want to travel, uh, saved a lot of money, not all of uh, individuals around the world, but there are uh, individuals which can still spend at this price level. So um, to answer the question, I would believe we already start to see some modest impact at these levels, but the higher we go, the bigger it gets. 
Giovanni, I also want to ask you about the medium-long-term view on some of the gas storage facilities in Europe because there was an interesting story that crossed yesterday around Gazprom and whether the Europeans would start to force Russia to sell some of these storage facilities, reclassifying them effectively around national security concerns. Do you think that is possible and what would that do to the, the gas market? My sense is rather going in the direction that uh, Europe uh, has has changed the direction that uh, it's not only focus focusing on renewables at the moment, but rather uh, taking into account that natural gas will play an important role. So um, I would expect rather they, that they come in and uh, would try to ensure to, to hold higher inventories than lower. And if someone is willing to sell, then someone is also willing to buy. Giovanni, nice to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us nice and early and giving us the benefit of your insight. Giovanni Stanova, Commodity Analyst at UBS. Um, Steve will be speaking later with the Lithuanian President, uh, Gitanas Nuseda. That conversation still to come on the programme, so make a point of staying with us for that. And, of course, for our conversation with Prudential, the insurance group sees operating profit gain but warns the crisis in Ukraine is clouding the outlook for the year ahead. We will catch up with Mike Wells, the CEO, in just a few moments. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Prudential has posted a 16% increase in four-year operating profit, beating expectations amid strong Asian regional sales. The London and Hong Kong listed insurers said the Ukraine invasion could have wider implications for global markets and economies. Joining us now is Mike Wells, the CEO of Prudential. Mike, thank you very much for joining us. I can tell there's a lot to pick up with you on this results day today around the situation in Hong Kong with COVID. But I want to bring up Ukraine first because we're watching uh, some very wild swings on energy markets and on stock markets globally. What do you think the fallout from Ukraine is on your company at this point? And obviously, the, the humanitarian events are tragic, but I think that, you know, for the company, we have de minimis exposure to Hong Kong directly. We certainly have friends and relatives and co-workers there. So, you know, the humanitarian side is real. Um, our businesses are in Asia and Africa. So there's a, a secondary effect of, you know, the market volatility that you're, you know, that, that's well discussed and traveled now. And I, and I think, uh, you know, it, the impact on us is less than others because of the resilience of the business. But it's been, uh, you know, I think it defines some geopolitical risk and, and it's, uh, you know, it's a material element in the market, as you see, uh, obviously, uh, you know, has broader implications than just finance. Mike, the IMF was talking about the impact on some of the Asian economies as well, emerging markets where you are seeing large imports of energy. And given the spike, what we've doubled on the price of oil since the lows in December, this no doubt will have an impact on the cycle, the economic cycle of some of those countries. Is that linked to insurance? Do you think that you do see a fallout on the cycle of businesses, consumers willing to reach for those insurance products if we've got a slowdown? 
Well, let's go back to last year. You know, we had uh, a, a very strong year. We had what we consider very high quality, resilient growth. Our, our, you know, in a year that was incredibly complicated with COVID in Asia, you know, we saw AP sales up 8%, our new business profits up 13 and as you reported, 16% operating profits. So the resilience of the model is different than the impact of, say, inflation that would come from this. I think inflation is getting more complex. Um, if you just simply broke it into you know, the, the percentage of service goods in an economy versus, uh, say, consumers you know, buying you know, real goods, uh, are you an importer or an exporter of that? It varies by every single country we're in, um, as it does here. I'm in London today. It does, it does in London. And I think the tools that these, you know, the central governments have vary quite a bit based on that and, and candidly what they did in quantitative easing. But energy prices were, were been rising for the last year. And, uh, and we've dealt with that. Uh, you know, we have the ability to reprice our products. Uh, we do that carefully. Uh, and we have the ability, uh, you know, I think in most of our markets to, you know, what we've, we've seen is to create more affordable products for our, our customers. And that added, if, if you can imagine, just 2.3 million new customers to Prudential last year alone. Hey, Mike, good morning. Um, good to see you in your own personal gallery. We're, we're loving the gallery shot, by the way. But um, just, just to, to look, the purpose of the demergers was to focus on the Asian business and that greater China opportunity. Unfortunately, because of the border closure between Hong Kong and China, I think that's really, that must have nibbled into your opportunity to sell into the China market those policies that are so attractive for the operation going forward. How optimistic are you that we might finally see that border open and you do a lot more new business in China, given what a mess of uh, the whole COVID lockdown Carrie Lam seems to be making of things in Hong Kong? Well, the the you know Hong Kong's experience with with COVID has been different than others. I mean, when they were locked down, they had incredibly low infection and and uh, and mortality rates, and then now you see they're getting in this this fifth wave, uh, you know, some dramatic spikes. And so I, I think there isn't a market that we're executing in that isn't trying to get past this, right? And and you see different markets at different paces, as we saw on the front end, being in Asia. You know, we were in countries. That were impacted by, including China, that were impacted by COVID at the very beginning of, of, of uh, the pandemic, and I and I think uh, the, the border opening is critical to Hong Kong's success. It's certainly critical to being uh, an international financial center in, in its in its role. Um, we saw twenty four percent growth in our China business. Uh, you know that we one of the fastest, if not the fastest, growing in the market there, and we saw nine percent growth in Hong Kong with our domestic. With our with our, our team there focusing on the domestic market on new retirement products and health products, as you can imagine across the uh, you know across the market, there's been incredible increased demand and awareness of, of health and protection products, and that's given us you know a lot of additional structural demand. And I wish it was my art. It's uh, this will stay when I go. We're loving the shot anyway, Mike. Let me ask you, um, what is your expectation with regard to one premiums inflation? and two increased claims because we know that Hong Kong and some other parts of Asia are still going through the waves and are experiencing higher unnatural deaths at this time. Yeah, the, the, the bulk of, the, you know, the, of the, the deaths, the mortality we saw in the COVID claims were disproportionately in the second half of last year for us in India and Indonesia. Um, but across the region, um, we paid over 100,000 uh, COVID claims last year. And uh, and that pretty much normalized the the experience we'd had from the lower addition, uh, uh, other types of medical claims, if you will. 
Um, uh, but it also is what you're supposed to do as an insurer. You're supposed to be there when people need you and you're supposed to have impact, you know, when, uh, you know, when things are tragic. So I, I think it's an example, but to put it in context, we're at 18.6 million clients in Asia. Um, so, you know, we, we obviously, uh, our solvency has never been better. We're at 408 on the local uh, uh, solvency metric, which is an incredibly strong number. We've never had, you know, more central liquidity. We've never, you know, we, we did the, both the, uh, the equity raise at two and a half billion in Hong Kong, and we refinanced, restructured our debt, in, you know, December and January this year. So, you know, from a resilience point of view, we're fine. Um, and we, we price, as an insurer, you price these risks into the market. And I think as an insurer, you're there for the customer when these, you know, these are tragic events occur. And so all, all that's doing what you think it would do. Karen was asking you about the broader market outlook at the beginning of the interview. I think it's just worth circling back to where we may be going on interest rates, given how sensitive uh, the business is largely to those key uh, interest rate levels. What is your expectation? Do you think the uh, geopolitical crisis we're having now in Europe is ultimately going to lead to lower uh, rates um, globally? No, I don't. I, I think it's market by market. Uh, you know, I, I think it's more likely to re, uh, lead to more inflation and, uh, and just more volatility, as we've seen. Um, I, I, you know, we, we've never been less sensitive to rates and equity. And those met- metrics are published. But that's because 83% of our fee stream comes from health and protection or, or just fees in general. And those aren't economically sensitive to rate or markets. Um, you know, Rising interest rates are generally good for insurers, and both from an accounting point of view and a real economic point of view. So we benefit from that, but it's not a risk to us. I do think country by country, uh, you will see. You know, if a sovereign's triple B, it's not going to see a flight to quality. Uh, and so I, I do. I don't think you'll see a consistent uh, behavior of risk off. You know, in in all of our markets, some of our markets are are you know relatively young emerging markets, and some of them are very mature, sophisticated markets, and and. Uh, but growth will be hard to find without question. Um, I think we've got a good footprint on where growth will be globally. Uh, and, and I think that's uh, you know, going to be one of the things investors look for is, is how do you, what markets are more resilient, what markets are growing, and what businesses are more resilient. I think those, that lens will change from stretching for maximum yield or maximum total return. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.